Leadership is influence. That's what I was taught when I was uh, studying business management and leadership at UWE. They really hammered that one in. Leadership is influence. You can call yourself a leader, but if nobody's following, you're not a leader. I remember reading about leadership being not about maintenance, but about transformation. You just think about that in terms of a, a family, a home, a a church or a school or a community, a town, city, even a nation, uh, good leadership transforms. Maybe you think of a super nanny coming into a completely delinquent and dysfunctional home and bringing the rod and putting things in order and getting the children to behave. Or maybe you think about the super head teacher that comes into a school that's failing on every scale and through a strength of personality and leadership is able to turn the school around and make it a success story in the community. You think about a mayor or a police chief coming to a town or a city that's riddled with crime, that is corrupt to the core, and is able to somehow bring about a transformation so that people can walk the streets in safety. And sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, even national leaders can bring about true transformation. Prime ministers or presidents that can actually do good creating a stronger, a healthier, a better nation, or even internationally think about Churchill and uh, the leaders of that generation and what they achieved. And I suppose when you think about these kind of transformational leaders, the, the, the feeling, at least the one I get, maybe you share it, is that you're thankful for them, you're glad they're there, you're glad they do what they do, but you probably don't want to get too close. You know, there would be a sort of a strength about them. You could get caught up in the wake. You could be battered around a little bit and come away bruised for having known them. It seems to be that, that, that leadership requires that kind of strength. There's a textbook that I didn't read when I was at university. It came out right at the end. It's called The Mafia Manager. Here's a quote from The Mafia Manager. I don't know if you want to rush out to get it. But it says this, People problems must be dealt with harshly. When you make an example of someone, make sure everyone knows what the lesson is. Punish one, teach a hundred. Now that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But uh, what about Donald Trump? Ever heard of him? Successful leader. When somebody challenges you, fight back. Be brutal. Be tough. Huh. Seems like if you're going to achieve that kind of transformation, maybe you have to cut some corners. Maybe you have to compromise in some way. Or maybe you don't. I was reading this week various surveys that were done uh, among groups of people. I remember one of the samples was 1,600 people involved in business. And they were asked, what are the traits or characteristics that you value in those who are above you in the organizational chart? And the answer that came back overwhelmingly was not competence or strength or uh, ability to inspire. The overwhelming characteristic that people looked for was honesty, integrity. Someone you can trust. Mafia manager again says, The most important thing in your business relationships is your reputation for honesty. If you can genuinely and sincerely fake honesty, you will be a success. Never doubt it. Now, don't take that advice. That's the mafia manager. We don't want to go there. But actually, there's something about that, isn't there? That people do fake it, people do pretend, people do try to maintain control, including control of reputation. But is that God's way? I don't think so. Uh, Peter Drucker, one last quote, 
He's one of those management leadership gurus. He says effective leadership is not about making speeches or being liked. Leadership is defined by results, not attributes. Really? But by that definition, Hitler was a great leader. If you can get people to do what you want them to do, that makes you a great leader. Results is the goal. I don't think so. Biblically, that's not the case, is it? Biblically, the kind of leader that God establishes, the kind of leader that God delights in, is not one that is just strong and powerful and gets the results no matter what the cost. Just reading recently about uh, David and Saul. Remember them? Saul, the leader of the people's choice. He was head and shoulders above everybody. He was the strong man. He was the impressive one. And then there was David, a man after God's own heart. Because God doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the inside. And so very quickly in the story of David and Saul, you come to an early climactic moment. You know the story, the story of Saul and Goliath. Oh, wait. No, it wasn't Saul and Goliath, was it? You see, Goliath was the giant, head and shoulders above anyone you've ever seen, even if you watch basketball. Absolutely huge. And there he was, standing in the valley, calling out to the Israelites, send out your best fighter, I'll take him. And so who was their best fighter? Who was head and shoulders above everyone else? Saul. But Saul was cowering in his tent. Strength sometimes is just a cover for fear. And yet young David, the man after God's own heart, he stepped forward, he faced Goliath, trusted God and dealt with the problem. And from that point on, Saul had a problem on his hands. As you read through the Bible, you get these contrasts, power leaders versus the leaders that God really values. Something going on on the inside, something different, a qualitative difference. I was just reading Judges this morning, Joshua yesterday, compare and contrast. The the impressive figures in Judges, not really. They were all broken, it seems. They were all limited and restricted in some way. Even if they had supernatural, superhuman strength at times, there was a brokenness about them. Compare them with Joshua, a man who had spent time with Moses, a man who had spent time with the Lord. Joshua was a leader. I'd take him over the Judges any day. But this evening, I want us to focus on the greatest leader, The leader that the Bible points us to more than any other. Andy read to us Isaiah 42. If you've got your Bibles open, that would be the place to keep your finger on the text. We want to see what Isaiah 42 has to say about the greatest leader, God's leader of choice. Isaiah chapter 42. Now, just by way of context, Isaiah 42 uh, is in this section of Isaiah that goes from 40 to the end. 40 to 66. It's probably, without any real argument, the greatest section in the Old Testament. Just an incredible, astonishing section of Scripture that presents to us, as it presented to them, a message of comfort. You see, in chapter 39, they'd had a visitor. The southern nation of Judah, this is 700 years before the time of Christ, they'd had a visitor from the east, an envoy from uh, Babylon. And the king had uh, not really trusted in God particularly well. And so Isaiah announced the prediction of their greatest ever failure, that they would be taken by the Babylonians into exile. Now, the king wasn't too bothered because it didn't affect him because he was selfish and self-absorbed. But the nation would have been bothered by that. How can we be out of the promised land? 
How can we be in another land with other gods? Does that mean that those gods are greater than our God? That's what they're going to say. The playground uh, theology of the Middle East. Our God is greater than your God because you're our prisoner. And so Isaiah 40 begins with this message of comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And he goes on to, to give this message of hope and comfort that he is going to deal with the issue. He is going to deal with the the return of the people from Babylon, but more than that, he is going to deal with the people's greatest problem, the the dungeon of darkness that is sin. God's going to take care of it. And so from 40 to 66, you have this absolutely overwhelming portrait of Yahweh, the Lord. 40 to 48, the first nine chapters speak of him as being incomparable. There's no other God like him. In 49 to 58, the focus shifts to who we would call God the Son. And the centerpiece of that is how he will die, Isaiah 53, an atoning sacrifice as a substitute for us, for them. And then from 58 to 66, the focus shifts again to God the Spirit and the Spirit's work of beautifying and making everything good and right at the end. And and so you have this 27-chapter section that is just... uh, It's a symphony of great theology. And right here in this first section, 40 to 48, we're introduced to the servant. Now, the servant is really going to come into focus in 49 uh, to 57, that middle section. But he's introduced here. I'll say who he is a bit more in a second. There's this massive comparison and contrast going on. I've just been thinking about people in exam season. I remember exams. Compare and contrast, one of the favorite questions. Compare and contrast. Anyway, uh, compare and contrast God, the God of Israel, with the gods of the nations. In this section, you get this great contrast. The gods of the nations are useless. They can't create a thing. But the God of Israel created everything. The gods of the nations, they, they can't deal with sin or with, with any kind of redemption or deliverance, but the God of Israel is able to bring his people back from Babylon, establish Jerusalem. He's even able to deal with the sin problem. He's the redeemer. The gods of the nations can't predict the future, but the God of Israel can predict the future. Why? Well, because the gods of the nations can't speak. They're dumb. They're mute. But the God of Israel is a God who speaks, a God who communicates. And so you get this tremendous contrast between the God of the Lord of Israel as opposed to all these other petty, silly gods. And this is a message of comfort. A message of comfort for a people facing this absolutely overwhelming, uh, difficult time up ahead. In chapter 41, uh, before we come to the section we're looking at tonight, God talks about his conqueror. This is an individual who will come and conquer. Many people think that he's referring to Cyrus. He's going to get to Cyrus in 44, 45 in more detail. Cyrus was the king of Persia, but he wasn't born yet. Still 150 years to go, but God was saying, I'm raising him up. He's going to do my bidding. And he's going to come and he's going to conquer Babylon and he's going to set the people of Israel, Judah, free so they can return home. And what's the response of the nations to the conqueror? They turn to God and say, look what God has done. No, they flee back to their idols. And so we get into this conflict between God and the idols as God mocks them sarcastically saying, come on, you're you're useless. 
But then we come to chapter 42 and we're introduced to another individual. Not the conqueror now, but the servant of the Lord. This is a big theme in Isaiah in this uh, latter section. I think 34 times the word servant is used. Sometimes it's used in reference to the whole nation. Israel, Jacob, is, is the servant of God. And we see that in 41. We see it again later in 42 if we read it. Uh, the nation is God's servant. Not a particularly good one, but they are his servant. Sometimes it, it seems to be a bit narrower. It's, it's the believers in Israel, the true Israel. They are the servant of the Lord. But there are several times where the servant has to be an individual. The fulfillment of the nation, if you like, the fulfillment of God's purposes for them. This individual, the servant of the Lord, uh, and we get him introduced in 42, verse 1. Behold my servant. This is the first of four servant songs, as they're known. If you were to read on, I encourage you to do it. Read through this section and just look for the servant songs. They're in 49 and 50 and then end of 52 into 53. Uh, just an increasingly uh, heart-stirring presentation and portrait of the servant of the Lord. Who we would think of and know as Jesus the Christ. And here he is introduced in 42. He's not just dealing with an exile in Babylon. He's dealing with a bigger issue, the issue of sin, a global issue, a horrifically dark and oppressive issue, an issue that has pervaded every society and every community and every heart ever since Genesis 3. And this servant of the Lord is going to deal with it. And so when we come to 42, the song itself is really the first four verses. And then in the next few verses, from 5 to 9, God continues to speak. And in effect, he gives his stamp of endorsement to this servant that he's described. And then from 10 onwards, it speaks of the response that's expected. Now, we're going to take those in reverse order. We'll start with the response, and then we'll see God's endorsement. And finally, we'll get to the song of the servant itself. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Have you ever been in a place where there's a crowd of people and they burst into applause and cheering? What's your first response? What's happening? Excuse me, what's going on? Who's there? Isn't that our first response? You don't see a crowd cheering and celebrating and clapping and go, ah, bah, humbug and move on. I mean, you might, but don't. You know, normally, uh, healthy humans tend to be interested. I wonder what's happening here. Well, that's what we have in verses 10 and following, a, a rapturous response to what we're about to see afterwards. Verse 10, um, 10, 11, 12, is speaking of uh, calling the world to, to a song. It says there in verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. And then Isaiah talks about the, the ends of the earth, the nations. He talks about the islands. It's really the distant peoples. That would include us from his perspective. He also talks about people on the mountaintops and people who go down to the sea. That's from one extreme to the other and everything in it. And he also talks about not just those who are far off, but those who are close. The people of Kedar, the northern Arabian desert people, just across the border. 
the people of Selah, that is Petra, down in Edom, again, just across the border. He's saying literally every Gentile everywhere, from those right up close to those far, far away, they need to be singing a song to the Lord, a new song, because of this person, because of who he is and because of what he's done. Let them give glory to the Lord, verse 12. And then in verse 13, we get this presentation of the Lord as a leader. The Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and triumph over his enemies. Sounds a bit like a super head teacher, doesn't it? Mighty man, bulging muscles, big fist. It's the same word as Isaiah 9, the one we quote every Christmas. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Government will be on his shoulders. And, and what will he be called? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Same word here, mighty God. This is the, the warrior power, uh, impressive God who's able to crush his enemies. And actually there's some comfort in that, isn't there? He's able to crush Babylon. He's able to crush all who oppose him. He's able to crush those who persecute his people. God is powerful. He's mighty. And one day he will deal with all who've opposed him. That's a comfort, but it's sort of a comfort you don't want to get too close to, isn't it? Don't you have that sort of internal, I'm glad he's strong, hope he doesn't notice me. Because if there's sin out there, what about in here? And so there's the God, the warrior. But hold that thought, because as we go back into the previous verses, we find that the leader that God calls, the servant that he sends, actually isn't just like that. There's more to him. And perhaps something that will allow us to be drawn into him. Verses 5 to 9, God's endorsement of him. Verse 5, first of all, God says, I'm the creator in effect, this is the, what the Lord says, the creator. He is the, the powerful one who stretched it all out. And, and just think about the stars and the galaxies and, and the Milky Way and all of that. It's just mind-blowing, isn't it? Remember when I was on the OM ship, one of my favorite things to do at night was to go right down to the aft mooring station, right at the back of the ship. And the ship was kind of behind me as I was leaning out over the railings and I could look up and there were no lights at that end, so I could have died. But I leaned out and I'd look up at the stars. You just uh, you start off with five or ten or fifty or five hundred or five million. It just more and more, the more you look. And God placed them there. He's the creator. It doesn't get any more powerful and impressive than that. But then in verses 6 and 7, we find that the creator has compassion. The creator cares. He's concerned. He says, I, the Lord, have called you the servant in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. This is that great Old Testament theme of the new covenant. How God is going to deal with sin by something new that he's going to do. It's something new that he's going to establish Jeremiah tells us that through the new covenant, God will forgive sins so that we can know the Lord. Ezekiel tells us that he's going to give us his spirit so that we can be brought into a lively, alive relationship with God. And here, Isaiah tells us that this covenant is wrapped up in flesh. It's in the person of the servant. He's the bridge. He's the link. He's the one 
that makes it possible for sinners like us to be in relationship with God. I love the description here in verse 7. Open eyes that are blind. Set captives free from prison. And then he combines both of them to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That is a light to the Gentiles. Again, a theme that's been weaving its way through the book of Isaiah. This is the servant of the Lord who represents the creator who has concern for the little people. Concern for people who can't see, for people who feel stuck. Those who are trapped in the dungeon of sin or the dungeons of Babylon. He cares and he's able to deal with that. And then in verses 8 and 9, this is the God who not only is the creator, who not only is he concerned, but in contrast to the idols, he's real. Just to really reinforce it, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And then he says, look, I've announced all this stuff to you. That's the kind of God that I am. So so there we have God's follow-up, his endorsement, if you like, of the servant. He's the creator who's concerned and who is, in contrast to the idols, real. And he's the one who stands behind this servant. And this servant and the work that he does in this world is what should stir within the nations and stir within us the singing of a new song, 10 and following. So let's look at the servant, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. First thing we should see here. And I hope we see it. I hope we have eyes to spot this kind of thing. The ministry of the servant is birthed out of the relationship the servant enjoys with God. In New Testament terms, the father and the son in relationship with one another. That is the source of all that Jesus has done. And so see what he says here. Or behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations you know it it really concerns me when I come across Christians that seem resistant to the idea that God is Trinity or resistant to the idea that that we should ever even consider or think about such things what could be more thrilling than everything that is being worked out throughout history being an overflow of the relationship that exists within the Godhead. I tell you, that's the kind of God that I am thrilled by. That's the kind of God that as we see Him revealing Himself in the Scriptures, He stirs our hearts to believe that this is a God who can relate because He's always been a relator. A God who, if He invites us into relationship, it's not a trick just to get our service but it's a genuine offer to bring us into the fellowship that he has enjoyed for all of eternity with his son. And so three times that I can think of in the New Testament, when the heavens opened and the voice of God the Father boomed down, what did he say? He said this kind of thing, didn't he? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I am delighted in him. Listen to him. That's what the Father wants us to do. To look at Jesus and listen to what he has to say because the father delights in him and he puts his spirit on him he anoints him with his spirit the father the son the spirit in the old testament who would have thought it and then we get the mission his mission at the end of the verse to bring justice to the nations that's pretty big isn't it 
bring justice to the nations. I mean, just think about it. We live on a globe that is absolutely shot through with sin. It's saturated with self-absorption, isn't it? It reeks of rebellion. Everything about this world, from beginning to end, ever since the third chapter of the Bible, right the way through to what is going on inside of us, this world just stinks of sin. And God is going to send his servant, and his servant is going to bring justice to the nations. Wow. That's impressive, isn't it? That's a huge goal. That, that, that is just an overwhelming goal for anybody. He must be somebody special. In fact, this idea of justice comes again in verse 3. At the end, it says, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He's going to follow through. He's going to get it done. Last time through the Bible, I was really struck by how many times it talks about God's loving kindness and faithfulness. His loving kindness and faithfulness. His loving kindness and faithfulness. It's like a refrain that you can find on almost every page, it seems, of the Old Testament. Two words. One, loving kindness speaks of God's grace, his, his giving, his love. And the second one reinforces it. His faithfulness, his loyalty. He's not going to suddenly change the rules on you. He's not going to suddenly become somebody else. He follows through in his graciousness. God who's full of grace and truth in New Testament terms. Loyalty. That's the word right here. It's in his faithfulness that he will bring justice forth. That means that he won't stop, that he won't hold back, that he won't give up, but he'll follow through and he'll get the job done. We don't see it yet, but one day this whole planet will be under his perfect rule. He's going to deal with it. He's going to get the job done. In fact, he goes on and says one more thing about justice, just to reinforce his determination. It says in verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. He's not going to hold back. He's not going to get put off. He's not going to give up en route. And as you go through the other servant songs, this idea of his discouragement just gets bigger and bigger. You see it in 49. You see it again in 50. And by the time you get to 53... He's led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he doesn't give up. He follows through. He gets the job done. And so in his law, the islands will put their hope. There's that ultimate goal. In his law, in his teaching, in the revelation that he brings, the whole world ultimately will put their hope. Again, it's kind of like verse 13, isn't it? It's impressive. It's global, it's, it's powerful, it's, it's sort of, it seems like someone who's meteoric, who's driving forward and nothing can put them off. It's impressive, but you may want to not lean in too much. You may think, I don't want to get too close, this seems like one of those super head teachers or one of those super police chiefs, the kind of person that's going to do good, but, and you know, the end will justify the means, but I wouldn't want to get caught in the crossfire. I better not get too close to him, but we've missed a bit, haven't we? Right in the middle, like the meat in a sandwich, verses 2 and 3, give us detail about this servant that should draw our hearts into him like never before. Verse 2, and then into 3, talks to us about his character and about his compassion. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Three words there. Shout, 
cry out, raise his voice. Let me give a bit of definition to those as doing a bit of digging in, in the meaning of those terms. He will not shout. He will not draw attention to himself. This is no attention-seeking kind of leader. This isn't somebody who says, hey, I'm here now, everybody look at me. He won't startle people. He's not after attention. Secondly, it says he will not cry out. That's the idea of dominating. He won't dominate. He won't shout down. If you're in a conversation with him, he won't overpower you with his volume and with his determination. That's not the kind of leader that he is. That's not his character. And then thirdly, uh, he will not raise his voice in the streets. He will not be self-promotional. He won't be self-advertising. He, he won't campaign. You know how on the British media we love to watch American politics? We pretend we don't, but we always watch it, don't we? Uh, and it's like the campaign trail begins today. And, and you know that this individual has got a bus full of people training them how to act. Wear this, there's a baby, three people along, make sure you pick it up and kiss it, the cameras will get that moment. You know, you get this whole kind of campaign strategy in place. And actually, the president who gets elected isn't always the best one. But it's always the one that's won people through his campaigning, through his communication, through his impression that he's given of his character. But that's not this leader. That's not this servant. He doesn't campaign. He doesn't uh, exalt himself and say, hey, everybody, look at me. We sing it at Christmas, don't we? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Have you ever thought about that? If, if the God who created everything chose to step into this world, wouldn't that just be overwhelming and everybody just be stunned by that? It could have been that way. But instead, he came in humility. It was a glory kind of veiled so that those with eyes to see could see, but those who didn't want to were not forced. God is a gentleman. He never forces himself upon us. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He, he wasn't attention-seeking. He wasn't domineering and shouting down and controlling with his influence and, and strength of personality. And he wasn't self-promotional on the campaign tour. But more than that, we also see his compassion, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A, a bruised reed I'm sure you can imagine a sort of a stalk of grass or whatever, a straw. And a, a bruised part, you know, it kind of is broken. It, it's, it's damaged. There's not much you can do for it. it just, it's not very significant. It'd be a bit silly to splint the thing, wouldn't it? But if it's bruised, it tends just to get knocked. And then you end up with a bit of grass on the grass. Who, who notices? Who cares? He does. And he won't do that. He will not break the bruised Read. In fact, that's the same term that comes in verse 4 where it says that he will not be discouraged, but he knows that we will be. He will not be discouraged. He will not be stopped from getting to the end, but he knows that we can be so bruised and battered at times by life and by circumstances and by a variety of things that we can end up kind of uncertain whether we're even going to carry on. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like it would just take a small gust of wind and you'd be finished? This servant will not break you. He's compassionate. He cares. I was reading a famous uh, set of sermons from some years ago. A preacher in London 
preaching about the quotation uh, of this in the New Testament. And he set his target on the uh, Jesuits, the, the Catholic commandos that were kind of hammering people. But really, he was sort of using them uh, as a target, but he was actually having to go at other preachers. And he was saying there's a lot of preachers that just bruise. There's preachers that just leave you feeling bruised and beaten down with the commands of God, with the law. Ever feel that way? Just beaten, battered, bruised. Jesus will not break you because he cares. In fact, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Think of a, a wick on an oil lamp or on a candle. The flame isn't there anymore. There's just a, a tiny little bit of heat in there and the smoke's still coming, you know, but there's just this tiny little bit of heat and all it would take would just be that and it would be finished. That same preacher talked about the work of the Spirit in our lives, that if there's even the faintest glow of love for Christ, that is something God has given to us and he won't snuff that out. He'll fan it into flame, bring it to the point where our hearts are inflamed with love for God. I really appreciate that about Jesus, don't you? That he, he doesn't just stridently march ahead and dare us to follow. But instead, he compassionately, carefully carries us. When we're bruised, he makes sure that nothing can break us. When we're smoldering, he makes sure that what's there is fanned into flame. Now, that's the kind of leader that I want to lean into. And so, what do we do with this? Uh, the servant of the Lord who has this global goal and yet has this gracious care and concern for little people like us. This is, this is my idea of a leader. And so what do we do? Do we, do we make a set of applications? I suppose we could do that. And I suppose if we were going to make applications to ourselves, maybe some, something like this would be in order. First of all, if we're going to be leaders, our leadership needs to be born out of a relationship with God. That needs to be primary. It needs to be a defining feature of who we are, our close personal intimacy with God. If we're going to be leaders, we need to have a vision, vision on a grand scale, uh, something that stirs people, the kind of vision that only God can give. At the same time, we need to be the kind of people who will be caring and compassionate and concerned and gentle so that we don't break and damage those around us. And, and if God's goal is justice on earth, well, then our leadership needs to be marked by integrity from the very core. No lies, no half-truths, no uh, trickiness whatsoever. Total transparency. If we were going to make applications, those would be them, but I don't want to make applications. I want to make another application, the application the text makes. Verse 1, first word missing in the NIV. Behold, here is my servant. Behold my servant. You see, the problem with those applications, as right as they are, and they're worth pondering and praying through, the problem is that we can so easily take something that speaks of Jesus and do the whole Genesis 3 thing and turn it all in on ourselves and make us the center of the universe, and we're not. He is. And so God inspired Isaiah to say, look at him. I want us to look at him. Just in these closing minutes together, I want us to look at Jesus and say, okay, is Jesus really this servant? Is he really this way? Sure, he's going to establish justice. I get that. out. We haven't seen it yet. He's going to do it. But is he really humble? Is he really gentle? Is he really not self-promotional? Is he really a non-campaigner? Is he really the kind of servant that we read about here? 
I'd like to suggest he is, with seven references, New Testament. Uh, you can, don't bother turning to them. Let's just allow these to wash over us. Just as thinking about Jesus, first of all, in his birth, Jesus was humble, wasn't he? The wise men arriving in the palace at Jerusalem, but where's the fanfare? It's out in the fields. The fanfare of the angels to the shepherds. And what do the shepherds get told? Luke chapter 2, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Number two, in his ministry, Jesus was humble. Matthew 12, uh, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his ministry, Jesus pulled back instead of promoting himself, fulfilling the very verses that we've looked at. Romans 15 says the same thing, verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. And he quotes about three more of those type of verses. And then it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus was a servant. Not only in his birth and in his ministry. Think about his triumphal entry. Jesus was humble. Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you. Humble, gentle, riding on a donkey. Number four, in the upper room, Jesus was humble. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin And began to wash his disciples' feet. Number five, in his trial, Jesus was humble. 1 Peter 2 tells us that he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Even on the cross, Jesus was humble. Philippians 2. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Number seven, even in heaven, Jesus is humble. Revelation chapter five. There's a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But there was no one worthy to do that. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw 
a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Aren't you thankful for the kind of leader that Jesus is? The kind of leader who can achieve the greatest global goal there ever has been to deal with the sin problem. And yet the way he does it, his character, his compassion, the humility, the self-giving, the self-sacrifice, that's the kind of leader that we want to follow, isn't it? That's the kind of leader that we say, you know what? If that's what God's like, I'm in. If the God of the universe invites us to humility by his own humility, if the God of the universe who created everything invites us to love him by loving us first, what else can we do? He's the servant king, and we follow him. 